0: Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with these people. And so Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled to Phoenician Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad, and when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything which God had done through them. Then some of the uh, believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, these Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question, and after much discussion, Peter got up and he addressed them. Brothers, you know that uh, some time ago, God made a choice that I would preach to the Gentiles. God, who knows the heart, showed me that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He didn't discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of the Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophet are in agreement with this, as it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of mankind who may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food that is polluted by I- idols, sexual immorality, and from, the meat, strangled, uh, from the, meat, the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogue on every Sabbath. And so then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to choose some men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to not burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food, sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You would do well to avoid all of these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. And the people of the church read it And we're glad for its encouraging message. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, as we consider this narrative today and we talk about this important subject of racism, we pray for insight and understanding into the kind of relationship that you're calling us into with you, with each other, and with ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know we are in the midst of our gospel versus racism uh, teaching a series. Now, I want to confess to you—we've been telling you that you can go online and catch up with this, but we're a little bit—we've had some technical difficulties with the website, and so we are hoping to rectify that today and get all the messages so that you can catch up. But they're not there right this moment, so give us a day, and we hope to get all of that back up so you can catch up with the series. But we've been talking again about the gospel versus Uh, racism. And uh, firstly, let me reiterate again uh, that I realize that a white guy standing up here and talking about racism may be a a little awkward for you and maybe for me. And uh, so I want to also just kind of put it out there that uh, I am not coming to you as an expert on this subject, but a a fellow learner. I know that some of you have certainly experienced racism far more than I have and are much more Uh, familiar with the the outcomes of racism, and so I come to you as a learner and not an expert in this uh, subject, but I think there is something that we can find together in this particular biblical story that may uh, help us as we journey together uh, on this subject. And so we see today in Acts chapter 15, and we're following up again these messages that we've been uh, hearing the last couple weeks. Kathleen was with us uh, two, two weeks ago. Saba was with us last week, and then we actually started Uh, three weeks ago, looking at Acts chapter 10, which is the place in which we're told that Peter, who had a racist background, was in essence converted to the idea that the gospel, the good news about God's work through Jesus, was not just for uh, Peter's racial group, that it was for everyone, and this was mind-blowing. So our text today, Acts 15, now five chapters away from Acts 10, is actually referencing back to that time when Peter came to the understanding That the good news was for everyone, and that had a tremendous impact on the entire church. With that said, now missionaries, if you will, were going out to places in which uh, they were meeting Gentiles, so non Jewish people. They were preaching the good news. As this was happening, there was a, a group who were coming to kind of disturb them by saying, Look, you first, before you accept the good news of God's work through Jesus, you must first become Jewish. And so this was one of the first questions that the early church had to wrestle with. Do you have to be Jewish to be a follower of Jesus? Is it necessary to become a Jewish and practice all of the, the, the Jewish ceremonial practices in order to be a, quish, a Christian? That was the big question. And so after they got together, Peter, who was kind of the spokesperson from, for the apostles, was, was very, very clear. In verse 11, he says, no. No, uh, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, and this, is, this means that people are saved just as they are. That's a quote from uh, Peter. And so Peter is, is clear about uh, this issue that you do not have to assimilate into the, the Jewish uh, cultural practice to be a follower of uh, Jesus. Now, Acts chapter 15 is not the first time this issue of uh, cultural practices and traditions came up in the context of the early Christian believers. In fact, Jesus had a similar uh, issue that he had to work with. This is in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 1, and we read that some Pharisees, this is a religious, a group of religious leaders, actually almost kind of a political party within the the system, then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. So this was a cultural practice, and they're, they're wanting to know. Again, hey, why aren't your disciples more Jewish? And so Jesus responds uh, in verse 3, Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father and mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father and mother with it. Totally another story, but what Jesus is doing is counteracting their, their, their hypocrisy by pointing out this, this, how they're using cultural practices for their own benefit. And so then he says, thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So this idea of do, we, do people who are following Jesus have to follow the traditions of a particular uh, uh, ethnic group is, is that necessary? This is not the first time that comes up here in Acts chapter 15. Jesus had to deal with the same uh, question. And so it's a question, though, that we continue to deal with even uh, today because this, this issue of assimilation has permeated Christian history. And while the first question was whether you had to be a Jewish to be a Christian, uh, as the uh, European Western culture embraced Christianity and also became became increasingly imperial, the next question wasn't whether you had to be uh, Jewish to be Christian, it was, do you have to embrace Western European culture to be Christian? And this is kind of where we find ourselves uh, today. Do you have to be a a Western European in culture to be a a Christian? Now, for many years, and, and in many places even today, the answer is, for all intents and purposes, Yes. Uh, look at the dominance of a Western, what we think of as Western culture, uh, and its influence in uh, Christianity, even even today. With a couple examples. So, um, clothing. If you, you know, you can go in, in a Christian church uh, around the world and find that there is almost a uniform as to what, uh, particularly men, but women too, but uh, what, what a, a, a person is supposed to wear when they're worshiping in a Christian church. I have had uh, I, I've, I've spoken in, in places outside of this, this country, and there is an expectation that a, a man who is preaching will wear a suit, a, a, a dark suit, and, and with that suit there will be a tie. I've had colleagues who have gone to preach places, and they were not allowed to preach because their suit was blue and not uh, a dark suit. They could not go on the on the platform and get behind the podium because you do not you that you just Christians wear suits, uh, particularly when they are preaching. Well, so as I was thinking about sharing with you, I think well, you know what what is where does the suit the tr- the suit that we think of uh, come from today? Uh, and so you 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 ask Google that question, and you you cu- you'll quickly get to a guy named Bo Brummel, who was a Hmm. Beau Brummel, early 19th century. So before that time, you know, people, especially in high society, were, you know, powdered wigs. In western high society, they were powdered wigs and all kind of like, you know, outfits from the 17th and 18th centuries. So, you know, Beau was a, he was a, an English dandy, as you, as you would be called. So he was a, he was a fine uh, dresser. And so Beau kind of refined and adapted the, the dress of previous times into really what we think of as the suit, like a pair of pants. We're talking about men in particular here. Of course, there's a whole other story behind a women's dress. We won't get into that. I only found Beau Brummel. So Beau pants, jacket, shirt, uh, tie. This, this became kind of the dominant feature for people who were kind of the, uh, in, in, in the upper middle class, if you will, of 19th century England. Well, it was just about this time, of course, that England is expressing its imperialism and sending by by sending missionaries all over the world. And so, missionaries are going all over the world to tell people of Jesus. But they didn't just tell people about Jesus. They also introduced this idea of wearing a dark uh, suit. And so, you will go to some places where it is synonymous uh, with the tra- tradition of wearing a suit and tie when you go to church. With uh, being a Christian or being a part of Christian worship, where did that come from? Well, it goes back to uh, Beau Brummel in 19th century England. But it's not only in dress that we see like this imperialism uh, permeated. So visual art—we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. You know, so much of Christian visual art that we have comes from a very, very Western perspective: white Jesus, blonde hair, blue eyes. I promise you, if a blonde hair, blue-eyed you know, 6'2 guy showed up in 1st century Judea, everybody's head would have exploded. You know, that—that was not what a 1st century Semitic person uh, would have looked like. No no way 6'2, blonde hair, uh, blue eyes, white skin, it just didn't happen. And yet, that is what uh, Western culture has kind of permeated as being the picture or image of Jesus, and certainly the same thing has happened for the Father as well. So you, this Western imperial influence on Christianity. Music is, is another thing. I think I told you, but I'm going to tell it again. I, this really hit me when my, uh, Sarah and I went as, as missionaries. We were, we were college students, and we went to the Republic of China, a.k.a. Taiwan. And I remember our first uh, Sabbath uh, in Taiwan. The, the service was in Mandarin, which meant that we did not understand anything until, until it was time to sing a hymn. And when it was time to sing a hymn, what did we all do? We stood together, and we grabbed a book, and we picked up that book, and what was in that book? Chinese songs rooted in the culture of Chinese poetry, and imagery, and metaphor, and so on? Of course not. The first hymn we sang was Fanny Crosby, an American songwriter from the Of course, the 19th century, and you flip through the Adventist hymnal, and what is it, song after song. Now, the words have been translated into Mandarin. Thank God. Uh, But the, the music, the metaphor, the imagery was all from the American and English songwriters. And so again, we see this influence of Western culture in Christianity. And so while in Jesus' day, the issue was, hey, do you have to be Jewish to be Christian? In our day, the question is Do you have to be a Western in culture to be Christian? And again, for many, the answer has always been yes. You have to abide by these certain cultural traditions if you're really going to be uh, a Christian. So here we are. So the, the imposition of uh, this dominating culture has been an, an, an issue, or dominating cultures in general haven't been an issue. And for today, it's, it's this, in our context, it's the Western uh, uh, culture. Now, you may ask yourself, quote, this is uh, uh, interesting, but what does this have to do with racism? Well, anytime one racial uh, group believes another racial group is culturally or behaviorally inferior, racism I- exists. And so underlying this idea of cultural imposition or the idea that people have to be assimilated to a particular uh, particular cultural experience is often the idea that one is inferior to the other. And so according, again, to Acts chapter 15, our text of emphasis today, cultural assimilation isn't a necessary precursor to to receiving the good news about God's work in Jesus. And in fact, cultural assimilation is unbiblical and antithetical to this uh, very gospel. Now, outside of, like, overtly... Uh, racist groups or racist people. Most people would never confess to, you know, requiring cultural assimilation in anyone else. Uh, Yet, any time that you say probably to yourself, not out loud, I love all people, black, white, Latina, whatever, as long as they adhere to my accepted cultural practices and behaviors, they're fine, then you're falling in this trap of cultural assimilation, right? And so that, this is what happens, right? Was I'm not racist. You know, I'm not racist. I love all people as long as they act pretty close to the way I do, as long as they behave the, the same way that, that, that I do. And so this is, this is the problem. And so our question, our big question today is uh, why has assimilation been such a prominent part of uh, church history? What's the deal? I mean, right off the bat, right as the church is developed, there's this idea that people have to be culturally assimilated into a particular culture or experience if they're really going to be Christian. And so what's going on? Why is assimilation been such a prominent part of uh, church history? Now, there are a bunch of, as always, a bunch of potential responses to that, but I have three uh, for you today. And if you come to the afternoon, Jake is going to lead our afternoon uh, book discussion on how to be an anti-racist, but Ibram Kendi, you can, maybe you can, you can talk about some more of the, of, of the response to this. Why has assimilation been a prominent uh, part of church history? Today we're just looking at three though. Okay, so here we go. First one, uh, because we, and i have talked about we, you know, again, honestly, in our context, most of the, the, the idea that you have to be assimilated partic- from, to a particular culture comes from this Western um, experience, this Western background. But the truth is that any, any group of people can have the expectation that their practices are the best, and if you really want to be a part of the insider group, you have to be like them. So what is it about this idea that other people have to be assimilated culturally to really, to really be part of the church? Where, where does that come from? And so I think, again, there are three responses to that, that I have for you. First of all, we as people, individually, maybe as group, groups of people, we operate often with the assumption that our way of doing things is the best way of doing things, the standard by which everybody else should operate. So I have the, like, the really great and fun privilege of uh, meeting with, with some of you before you get married. So it's one of the, the really fun things about uh, being here at Advent Hope is that love happens. It might be even happening now. Who knows? You might be eating the delicious soup that's to come later this afternoon and spot someone across the table. A twinkle in your eyes and you will decide, I want to know that person better. And then who knows? You might decide, I want to go chat with Todd. And so we'll talk for eight or nine sessions together. And usually in the, f- in the first session, we talk some a little bit about like the expectations that you have for each other and it's during this time that we often find that expectations much as in love as two people can be there are oftentimes some expectations that are a little uh, a little off and this is often rooted to the reality that as individuals we think the world is supposed to work a certain way and when it doesn't work that way something is Something is dreadfully wrong. Well, when you come in an intimate relationship with another person, you're certainly confronted with a person who has a different background. And they have different expectations for how the world works and what is supposed to be best and so on. And oftentimes, these kind of come out in in funny ways, like what toothpaste is the best toothpaste, the, the moral toothpaste to use as a couple? Or the classic, my favorite one, the toilet paper roll. Over or under? Over or under? Where do we stand on this, Avon Hope? How many of you are over people for the toilet paper? Over. Okay, we have a strong... How about under? Under. There's a few under people. Okay, More to discuss while you're eating the soup downstairs, over or under for the toilet paper. Now, these things might seem small until you're confronted by a a person that you love very dearly who you find out believes differently than you are. How could you possibly believe that Crest is better than Colgate? Or charcoal toothpaste is better than not charcoal toothpaste? Or that the, 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 the toilet paper is over instead of under? And so it's this idea, you know, so we gain these ideas like, you know, I've been doing this my whole life, this is how things are supposed to operate, what is wrong with you person, right? So we do that on the, on the micro level as individuals, we think, we know how the world is supposed to work, and when we're confronted by someone who thinks differently, especially when it's somebody that, that we really care about, that can be very disturbing, but we also do this on the macro level as communities, where we think our cultural practices are the way that the world is supposed to work, and when we're confronted by other cultural practices, we're like, what is wrong with this group of people? They are clearly not doing things uh, 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 properly. And so we continue to have an issue with assimilation as a prominent part of church history because we operate with the assumption that our way of doing things is the best way of doing things. Okay, secondly, uh, we we have an issue with assimilation because we haven't properly reflected on what aspects of our culture, our traditions, and what are universal truths. This is uh, reflected, again, in our text of emphasis in Acts 15, verse 6. So we're told there that, you know, there was this debate. Do people who are Going to be followers of Jesus? Do they have to be circumcised, which is a cultural practice that, by the way, God gave to uh, Abraham, and then was 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 perpetuated down the line from Abraham's family. All right. So God had given this. So the question is, you know, do do does does everyone have to go through this surgical procedure to be a follower of, of Jesus? Well, so the apostles got together, and we're told in verse six that the apostles and elders met to consider this question. All right, so great job, apostles. This is exactly what they need to do. They're going to sit down and they're going to start thinking about their cultural presuppositions. Like think about what is really important to us, what is a a, a tradition, what is part of our culture, and what is a universal truth. And then in verse 7 we're told that after much discussion, Peter, again the lead disciple, he got up and addressed the, the group. So they've met, they've considered, they've thought about, they've reflected on what is cultural, what is a tradition, and what is a universal truth. And Peter got up and he, and he said, brothers, because he's talking to a bunch of men at this, this point, that's a whole other cultural issue, but brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles, these are people who are uh, ethnically, racially not part of the group that they're a part of, that the Gentiles might hear from my lips, he's talking about Acts chapter 10, the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. So in verse 19, skipping down, he says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. So, assimilation in the church has continued to be a problem because uh, oftentimes we again as individuals and as a community haven't properly reflected on that which is a cultural tradition and that which is a universal truth the disciples they did that they had the reflection period they sat down and they met to consider the the question and they came to the conclusion that no indeed this thing that was being imposed on these gentiles was not a universal truth it was not for everybody It was given to Abraham, and it was designed uh, for him and his family as a sign and a symbol of their willingness to follow God, but it didn't need, not everybody, you didn't have to do that to be a Christian. You didn't have to do that to be a follower of Jesus, and so they reflected on it, but oftentimes we don't reflect on what is a universal truth, what is, versus what is a cultural tradition, and so we keep requiring people to assimilate to our culture, or the culture, and power, and not be really reflective on what are universal uh, truths. Okay, finally, this issue of assimilation, why does it keep coming up in church history? Um, and this one is, this is pretty, pretty straightforward and evidenced in John chapter 11 and other passages, and that is that, you know, if we're really honest, we all, all a little bit, again, whether we're talking about individually or corporately, we all have a little lust for power and control we have a lust for power and control whether it's conscious or a subconscious this is evidenced again in john chapter 11 in a very particular uh, way and uh, this this story is told or this narrative is told just after jesus goes and raises his friend lazarus from the dead so lazarus is dead three days he's in the grave jesus waits he goes Lazarus comes back to life, it's a huge, huge thing. In fact, it's really toward the end of Jesus' life. In fact, you can make the case that Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead directly uh, 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 corresponded with Jesus' own death for what we're about to read. So you can imagine, people, they were near Jerusalem, so the people heard this, the news spread that there was a dead guy, and he came back to life, and Jesus was responsible. And we're told in verse 47 in John 11 that the religious leaders, the chief priests, and the Pharisees, who were a particular religious political group, they called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. These were all the top relig- religious leaders. And they said, This, what are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then, I mean, you ask, What's the problem? The guy's healing people. If he goes to a village and a whole village is is healed, they're not sick anymore. And He was out there and people were hungry and he fed 4,000 and then he fed 5,000 people. Why why would you not want to get behind uh, this guy? What is the issue? I don't get it. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. See, the real issue was a power. If we let Jesus continue to do what he's doing, we're going to lose our power. And this is just the reality. Like we all, we all, again, if not individually, as, as groups of people, we have a little bit of a lust, or maybe a lot, for power and control. It was a huge issue. Make a very good case it's why Jesus was crucified or one of the reasons. And so this is, this is part of the deal. When you get to tell someone, you have the power to tell someone how to dress, how to eat, how to sing, how to behave in many different ways. You are exercising uh, power over them, and if you can b- combine a lust for uh, power with uh, religious practices, you can become pretty, pretty controlling, pretty powerful. And so, again, sometimes we justify this lust for power and control by believing that, you know, we have been chosen by a God to, to, to teach people to do what's right, and, and instead of just focusing on those universal truths, we, we, we package everything together, and so our, 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 our cultural experience goes along with that, and so that's dictated, too, and people are then controlled not just by the gospel but controlled by all of these cultural influences. And so a lust for power is really at the the heart of this issue of why assimilation has been a problem and part of the church history since almost the the beginning. This requirement that we are in charge and we are going to require people to behave in the way that we want people to behave in. It was an issue in the first century and it's been an issue in every century up to this point. In the first century, the issue is, must these people become uh, Jewish and for many of us, especially in what we think of the West, the question now is, must people become uh, Western European in culture? And again, the answer has been uh, yes. So, what, what do we do? I mean, we're talking about the gospel versus racism, and the reality is like racism is at the heart of this. If you think that your cultural experience, that your culture behaviors are better than another one and others are inferior to yours, this, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is racism. Well, how, how are we going to overcome this? I mean, this seems like it's permeated almost every aspect of the, the church. Well, there's good news, and that is that in Jesus, we have hope for a, a, a different outcome. See, You see, uh, Jesus, uh, he didn't require assimilation on behalf of those he was going to come to. In fact, he turned things around. He assimilated to the culture in which he was entering. He spoke Aramaic and in, in Greek. He dressed like a, a person would dress in, 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 in the first century. He was born as a baby. He was born as a human. He didn't come up as an alien, something that people, and he certainly wasn't blonde hair and blue eyes, something that people would be like, what is this? Who is that? I don't get it. He came as a a normal, normal person. Philippians chapter 2 says that he took the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and was found in appearance as a man. In fact, as a a normal man, Isaiah uh, chapter 53, there are very few descriptions, physical descriptions of of Jesus, but we get a pretty good one in the prophetic writings of Isaiah. Isaiah 53 says, uh, "Jesus grew up like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground, and he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him." The idea is that Jesus was like an average God an average man. He wasn't outstanding. You wouldn't look at him and say, wow, that guy is just amazing. He wasn't, you know, male, male model Jesus like we see in the, in, the, in the pictures. He was an average, average guy by, by looks because it wasn't the, the look. He was, he was in culture. He became a human. He became a normal human. He became a baby. He spoke the language. He dressed the dress. He Jesus assimilated himself into our culture rather than asking us to assimilate into his culture. That's profound. Because of Jesus did this, because he became part of us, became part of human culture, because he came hal- culture, because he lived as a human, because he dressed like a human, because he died like a human, uh, we have hope today. Uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 2 says this. Since God's children have flesh and blood. This is talking about the human race. Since the, the human, God, God's children, all of us go back to, to God's creation. By the way, this is one of the great assertion, uh, assertions of people of the book. And that is that, that our origin goes back to God. All of us. Doesn't matter you know, what your background is today or color or whatever. We all go back to the same god and so since the children god's kids have flesh and blood jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death that is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by fear of death for surely it isn't angels he helps jesus didn't come come as an angel could have done that could have come as an angel come to help humanity as an angel but he didn't do that he came as a human. He came into our, our space and became one of us and even took on the, 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 the culture that he could resonate with at the, at the particular time and place. Surely it isn't an angel he, he helps, but Abraham's descendants, people of faith. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. so he had to be like us to help us. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus assimilated. God assimilated himself into us, into our being, became a human, became a baby, talked, walked, dressed like we, we dress, like we talk, Because he did this, he has power to rescue us from a life where we expect others to be just like we are. We can be transformed and changed in our attitude about other people. Individuals, groups of people can be transformed and changed because of what Jesus has done. This is the message, this is the good news. God has done something that we were incapable of doing and because he has done that, we have hope to overcome all of the barriers, that have held us back from being the kind of people that God is calling us to be. In Jesus, God can empower us to not hold on to cultural practices and traditions of a particular background too tightly. To not consider our own way of doing things as the only way of doing things. To recognize that there isn't one Christian culture, uh, but many. The time and place, in geography, in language, and natural resources, all combine to shape a culture and that the gospel can be understood in every culture. And that the implications of the gospel can be expressed everywhere and to everyone. Traditions and practices rooted in local co- culture, as long as they don't contradict God, God's universal laws, are valuable parts of the human expression and should be valued rather than maligned. I mean, this is... The, this is the implications of God who's willing to come self and, and be engaged with us. In Jesus, we can learn to embrace true diversity, learn not to hold on to our customs and traditions as better or more sacred, but learn to be more accepting of others and learn to see good in others and to learn to treat everyone as children of God, which God calls us. Okay, I know what you're thinking. Hey, God, okay, fine. But aren't there behaviors and practices that are universal? I mean, aren't there some things that all Christians, you're saying, you know, everybody cannot be, it doesn't have to be assimilated into one particular culture or experience, but there, aren't there some things that we, are asked to share together as people who are followers of Jesus. And, of course, one of, the, one of the, the great examples, one of the great lists of this are actually found in Galatians chapter 5, and it relates to our text of emphasis today. This is Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. This is the Apostle Paul, who was there, was a, 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 one of the contributors to this dialogue in Acts chapter 15. So, Galatians 5, uh, Paul writes this, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and don't let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. What is he talking about? Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. So here we are, back to a completely different time, space. Paul is still talking about this issue of circumcision. Do you have to be a part of one cultural uh, or ethnic or, 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 or group of people to be a Christian? And Paul's affirming again, no. No, in fact, if you try to go out and do that, if you try to go and become a part of a, a particular culture group, it's going to be problematic, and actually it could have an impact on your ability for God to work in you. I, Paul, tell you, if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, not to be shackled by culture and tradition. But don't use this freedom from culture and tradition to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly. So we're trying to get out. Okay, okay, okay. Culture, tradition—we we, we do not have to be assimilated in that to be a follower of Jesus. But but, but what is changed in our behavior and in ex, experience, like, Aren't there some things that we're supposed to all hold in common? Serve one another, humbly, in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Now we're on to something. Isn't there a universal truth, a universal behavior that all Christians are supposed to abide by? Absolutely. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the great universal truth. Every Christian on the planet is called to love your neighbor as yourself. You remember, Kathleen talked about it a couple of weeks ago, who's your neighbor? <laughs> the person you don't think is your neighbor. That's the good Samaritan story. The person who makes you feel uncomfortable, the person who you may not even like very much, that's your your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the universal truth. But, but, but aren't we supposed to you know, dress a particular way, or, you know, do this or do this? Paul's saying, be careful. Get your eyes off what's really going on. God is calling us into a renewed relationship with, uh, with himself but also, also with each other. And the great universal truth is that you will love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, Paul says, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. <laughs> Isn't that the problem? I mean, th- think of the state of the world. The world is in a mess and it's because everyone is, 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 is biting and, and fighting and, and, and trying to exercise power over each other and, 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 and not seeing others, the good in others and we're destroying each other. But Christians, followers of Jesus, are to love your neighbor as yourself. And so Paul goes on to say, So walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace and patience, kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. There's nothing above these things. Culture and tradition, if that's not something we need to be assimilated into and may even be harmful to us, what is it that we need to be assimilated in? What happens when we become a follower of Jesus? How does our behavior change? Will you become capable of loving your neighbor as yourself? Even that neighbor who annoys you and, and is irritating to you and you might like, like and, and, and maybe you've had, you've had racial hatred toward for years or decades, or maybe your group of people have been against that group of people for centuries. In Jesus, that is to be abolished, and you are love your neighbor as yourself. And as we embrace the work that Jesus did for us, as the one who has became assimilated into us, we can be empowered through His Spirit to experience and and behave with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. And there is no law on the planet against these things. A group of people, a person for that matter, who can embody this, who embraces God's work in Jesus and has the Spirit start working in them, will be transformative in a broken world, in this broken world, where people are biting and trying to destroy and trying to control each other. And so as we wrestle with the implications of the gospel and and racism, may we be a people who are transformed by the Spirit to have love, love for our neighbor, even when our neighbor is someone we don't like very much or we have a long history against or or our group of people have a history against that group of people. That's not going to change on our own. We need God to do his work in us, that we can overcome the things that have been keeping us from loving other people. In Revelation chapter uh, 7, and I think throughout this series, we're going to just keep coming back to Revelation chapter 7, because it's one of the great pictures of the, of the kingdom in the end. In Revelation chapter 7, it's the end of the Bible, it's the end of the story, it's at the end when, when Jesus returns, and we're giving this image from John, one of the apostles, who's... And Matt, he's, he's seeing what's to happen in the future, and he says this. He says, I looked, and there before me was a, a gigantic multitude of people that no one could count. And they came from every nation, from every ethnos, and every tribe and people and language. And they stood before the throne and before the Lamb, Jesus. They were wearing robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the implication is that in the end there are going to be people from every nation and tribe and language and people and they are not going to be singing in the praises of how amazing they were and overcoming racism and putting down power and figuring out how to love each other on their own. They're going to be crying out to the God who is able to do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that salvation belongs to Him who sits on the throne and to His Lamb, Jesus. May God help us as we embrace the work of Jesus. May He do in us what we can't do for ourselves and bind us together in love, a love that compels us not to control, but to embrace. May He do in us what we can't do on our own. Amen.